Hello, Greenfluencers. Welcome to Season 5, Episode 2. And for today, we want to focus on climate communities. And that's something that I've seen quite a bit recently. I think in this post-COVID world, you know, there's a lot of information about climate change. It's very urgent, but the challenge is how do we bring people together and how do we how do we get them away from a state where they feel they can't do much to actually trying to do and make meaning? Some of the best ways to do this is, is to channel funds together and bring everyday people along a common vision. And that's something which our next guest, her name's Ariel Gamble, is doing. So Ariel is the CEO and co-founder of Groundswell Giving, and it's a pleasure to have her on board today. So welcome, Ariel. Thanks for having me. Awesome. So before I begin, I wanted to start off with an acknowledgement of country. I begin today by acknowledging the traditional custodians of the land on which I'm born, which I'm the Darug people, and pay my respect to the elders past and present. And I think, I think caring for country is something that I think Ariel feels is very important in the work she does and indigenous people have kept our lands, our oceans and all our natural surroundings in a very good condition for the past 65,000 years. Awesome. So what Ariel has done is she's the co-founder of Groundswell Giving, as I mentioned, and they're an organization that wants to pool funds together that specifically focus on climate solutions and create grants to help local organizations. And I think Ariel, I think you've probably seen there's a huge funding gap in these solutions, which I'm more than happy for you to talk about later. So yeah, I just wanted to begin, Ariel, a little bit more about a topic that's, you know, quite close to your heart and something that I was looking up uh, in your TED talk, which you did, I believe, quite recently, and that's the idea of legacy. So I think this will give our audience a good understanding of the person you are and your values. And you mentioned we can choose what we want to inherit and what we want to leave behind. So can you give our audience a bit of an understanding of the impact that legacy has played in your life so far? Sure. Thanks for the question. Um, I mean, legacy is such an interesting thing, isn't it? I don't think, I don't think I really thought too much about it until when I was just about 30 and I lost a parent. I'd never, I'd sort of been going along with my life, having a good time, doing all the things. But when you lose somebody you love, it sort of puts into quite clear daylight what a life can be, what it's made up of. Sometimes I think it takes loss to understand what we have or what we've made or what we've done. Um, when I lost my dad, he'd, he'd lived a really big life. He was an artist and a kid's book illustrator. He was a very clever person, but he was a very complicated person too. And I think coming to terms with his legacy, there was so much to admire. There were some difficult parts to it but all the kind of parts made up the tapestry that was a life. And I think that plays out on a personal level, but also on a universal level as well. When we think of all the different legacies that we inherit, um, not just from parents, but from, you know, ancestors throughout time, from the incredible legacies of First Nations leadership that you speak about, that you spoke about at the beginning of this episode of care and custodianship to legacies of and colonization and capitalism uh, that have gotten us into this sticky situation that we find ourselves with the climate crisis. So I think for me, at the age of about 30, I started to think a lot about my legacy and I realized that the things that I were doing in my life until that point, they weren't really adding up to what I wanted to achieve. I started for the first time to think about what being a good ancestor means, about what I wanted to contribute to the world with my life and what 
service meant to me and what giving back meant to me because um, I felt very lucky with everything that I'd, with most things in my life. So yeah, I think when you think, we can think about our own legacies, but we can also think about that kind of global legacy. And I think lives, big or small, we all have a part, part to play in leaving a better planet. Yeah, awesome. And and I think, um, and thank you for sharing that. And I think it's, you know, it's very confronting when something like a death happens. And I think it's like how you, I think it's what you sort of learn from that. And I think it's really good how you've used that and to understand the meaning you want to create in the world. And I think it's really interesting. You mentioned the idea of colonization and supposed negative legacies, because I've always looked at legacy, mm -hmm. you know, in a very, in a very positive way. Um, so I find that very interesting. And then, and then going on to yourself, which is, you know, the idea of what legacy do you want to leave behind? Um, and, and also acknowledging the ancestors and the things they've done before. So, um, you know, I'm sure that has a, has had a huge impact to what you wanted to do for grants while giving, which we will touch on later. But I also want to talk a little bit more about, you know, what you were doing, um, pre grants while giving and, I guess your upbringing and, and your work uh, in publishing, because I know that storytelling, I think you might've mentioned this in the TED talk was quite an important part of your life. And, you know, I think like it's so important, especially with the climate crisis and other things to sort of communicate very complex topics in a more simplified way. So can you tell us a bit about that, that whole idea of storytelling and I guess the effect that it's had on your life and career? Sure. Yeah. I mean, I grew up all around stories. Like I said, dad was a kid's book illustrator. His partner was a writer. My mom was an artist. Our friends were sort of all interested in stories. And I've always been interested in different ways to enter stories, not just through sort of, well, through ideas, I suppose. Some of, for me, like I love to read fiction books and I ended up having a career as a book designer. And for me, like, you know, the stories of Ursula Le Guin or, you know, from fantasy books to um, literature, they taught me so much about the human experience and values and life, uh, more so than I think reading textbooks ever did. And so I've always been quite interested in like other ways of learning and absorbing information. Um, that's, and I think the power of art to really cut through entrenched political ideologies to biases, you know, prejudice. I think there's something about, there's something universal that can carry through art forms and that can be a real leveler and a real connector as opposed to a polarizer. And so, yeah, I've always been interested in how stories can connect people with ideas or with each other. I worked as a book designer, like I said, for some years after school. I mean, I'd started studying law, I started studying social um, inquiry, but didn't really connect with the mediums of either. And I, I really just wanted to like make pictures for a while and be creative and be, have fun. So I sort of went down that road, worked at Penguin Books, went overseas, started getting interested in curating and art shows and that kind of thing. Found my way into arts-based advocacy and developed a project around offshore detention that um, absorbed many years of my life. And that was a really powerful thing to be a part of. Um, and through that project, I started to learn more and more about climate change. There was another really difficult issue that people were struggling to connect with that had become so politicized, like the issue of offshore detention, you know, that story had been hijacked and people were paying the price while politicians sort of were using it to advance their agendas. 
Um, so I, I saw lots of parallels between the way the climate story was told and the way the offshore narrative had been really hijacked and weaponized. Um, and I became interested about how we could tell better stories about something that's so important and really is just such a intersectional existential challenge and that really needed narratives that could empower people rather than disempower people. Yeah, for sure. And I think like, you know, in, in, in this day and age of fake news and media misinformation, I think it's so important that that storytelling element really comes to the fore and something as politicized as offshore detention and the whole idea of human rights is a big thing. And it's so interesting how through human rights, you've got like an insight into climate change. And I did want to sort of mention about how that sort of career change sort of come about. I, th I think you mentioned a bit before about significant events that happened around that time, but how did you actually make that transition? Because this would have been quite a few years into your career, correct? Yeah, look, I think I was really motivated. I was at the time when I'd been working in the book industry, to be honest, wellness publishing was really on the rise and I was starting to get really impatient about people focusing on juice cleansers at a time when there was such profound injustices happening. Yeah. And I could, I felt like we were this kind of culture of individualism rather than the collective. I felt worried that I was feeding into that and exacerbating that. I wasn't connecting with those stories and I didn't feel resonance there. Instead, I started to see my role in other kinds of stories. But yeah, I mean, it was a, I didn't have experience in advocacy at all, at mm. all. Um, so that was a learning journey. I studied with Australian Progress, but really I think it's interesting making it, I made a career change at about 30, right? And by that time, I was relatively senior in my career. I was confident <laughs> in what I knew. I had, a, I had a lot of the answers I felt um, to any kind of challenge that was thrown my way. I think one of the hardest things about a career change is just kind of stepping into that vulnerable space of, oh, I don't know, I'm not the expert. But it was also really rewarding because you get to learn this whole new world. And for me, like I oscillated between panic and stretch zones in my learning journey, but it was just so fascinating. And I think, you know, that the connection climate change is a human rights issue as much as it is an environmental issue, as much as it's an economic issue, like it's just, there's a very, it's, it's absolutely like at the core of all of those things. It's just something I think we sort of, I often see climate change being siloed into environmental conversations yeah. and it's just anything, but, and it's a, it's an issue of justice. Mm. as much as anything else, justice for people, justice for multi-species, all of the things. So that that connective tissue was very strong for me. And that's where I really saw it play out. You know, thinking about the levels of forced global migration and displacement, if the climate crisis continues to worsen, it's absolutely horrifying. So that was a major motivator for me to step in and very much the same connective tissue as what I was doing around um, offshore detention and our approach to that. Yeah, awesome. And I think like you made a good, great point about the siloed thinking we see in climate change as an environmental issue and like the importance of a system thinking lens. And I think it'd be really great for you to explain um, from a system thinking's point of view, how do we link human right displacement to a, a concept like climate change? Like how do we, how do we create those dots to sort of, I guess, link them together? Um, well, I suppose maybe we can go back to the 
what we were talking about at the beginning um, and this idea of legacy. You know, climate change is the tip of an iceberg of complex legacies of injustice. So from uh, the beginnings of colonization and empires going to the Americas and Africas to steal wealth and lives and lands, enrich their empire, um, grow this kind of capitalist economy and extractivist economies, um, we started to see this major injustice and this emergence of, you know, the global north and the global south um, as the capitalist sort of experiment accelerated over in America. We have figures like Andrew Carnegie who built in economic injustice to structures around how we, how we industrialized. And so we have these major tycoons um, making early deals with government to basically impoverish workers. They take the lion's share of wealth, give minimal taxes back. And so we see this sort of billionaire phenomenon arise in the last 100 years, 150 years, but 100 years particularly. Um, and now, you know, we have never seen economic injustice like it is. You know, in Australia and cost of living crisis, it's hitting incredibly hard while the richest 1% are benefiting more than ever before. Um, all the while, you know, the Earth's hotter than it's ever been. We have more carbon in our atmosphere than we ever have. These things aren't sort of coincidental um, siloed crises. They're one and the same. And all of those kinds of, all of those forces have coalesced to get us into this moment that we find ourselves in. So I think when we're thinking about addressing the climate crisis at a triage level, at a, if we think about it through a systems lens, at a triage level, of course, we have to, the first thing that scientists keep telling us to do, or which governments keep resisting, but we have to push through is to stop burning coal, oil and gas. Mm. Absolutely. We have to stop digging that up and stop burning it and transform our systems. But the way that we do that, you know, we can do that by simply replicating like colonial structures and again extracting the taking an extractivist kind of lens and applying it to the green transition or we can rethink center communities center justice and do things differently and it's a tricky one because we've left this we've left addressing this crisis so late right and that's been down to the fossil fuel industry absolutely engaging in a major disinformation campaign spanning 40 years and, you know, state ca capture of our governments and institutions, this culture around business as usual is fine. As though we have infinite resources on a finite planet, that story <laughs> um, as a fine thing. But really, I think it's a quite an interesting moment for us to ask ourselves how we approach this transition because it's inevitable and it has to happen quickly so it's going to be imperfect but how we can i think that's something we keep asking ourselves and that's a real driver of the approach we take it at groundswell there's a you know a big difference between climate action and climate justice so how can we in and bring solutions to the table look not just at action but justice yeah no thanks for that explanation ariel really it sort of went, it's a bit of a history lesson, but I think it really helped shape the context about, you know, like, I guess the linkages 
Um, and I think you mentioned two important points, and one was the community aspect and the climate justice aspect. And it's something that, you know, you've tried to embody at Grants While Giving. Yeah, and, and I'm just really curious to hear about, yeah, like how this concept sort of came about, because I think a lot of the funding we think should come from like governments or corporates or asset owners, like really the top end of town, but the really there's so much untapped potential in like everyday people. So I'm just really keen to hear more about like Groundswell, how it came about and the services that you guys offer. Sure. Um, well, I think it's interesting thinking about climate change and government funding, right? Because government aren't acting as fast as we need them to. Um, we've got a better government than the last one in terms of ambition on climate, but they're still like, they still have us on track to massively blow our carbon budget and to lock in a lot of harm for future generations. So they're not motivated right now to act and they're not funding the solutions and the strategies at the level that we need them to. You know, if you look at uh, America's IRA package and all the incentives, you know, Australia's nowhere yet on track for that kind of scale of ambition and financial commitment to the um, uptake of climate solutions. So what do we do? Well, ordinary people can actually help with the acceleration and be that kind of cut through between the reality that we have, the world that we have, and the world that we want. Um, so we started Groundswell because we could see there were all these people out there who wanted to see more action, were really frustrated at the government's lack of ambition. And similarly, there's a lot of really incredible climate advocacy out there ready to scale up and deliver a lot more impact, but they're all being held back by lack of funding. Mm -hmm. So this is a time where we need big ambition. We need organizations to be able to be really creative, really ambitious, really brave, really free to trial. You know, we have a few short years left to do as much as we can to reduce emissions in order to limit warming as closely as possible to 1.5 degrees and avoid surpassing that two degree limit from which there's no going back. So it's the time to run it up with everything that we have. But right now, and I, I suppose to back that up as well, like we have all the solutions to do the rollout, but we don't have the political will to implement them at the pace and scale we need to. So as much as you or I might want to, you know, solar to cover the whole of New South Wales in rooftop solar, to develop energy microgrids, to roll out offshore wind, to, um, you know, create all of these new systems and roll them out at that scale, we can't. We need policy settings coming from government. And we need funding coming from government to do that. So what we at Groundswell do is fund advocacy to build that political will and to bridge what we call the implementation gap. Because we have the climate solutions, we have the economic imperative. It's going to be cheaper for us to decarbonize our economy by far than it is to st stay in this fossil fuel Mordor economy. So what we do is fund work that breaks open that implementation gap to allow climate solutions to scale up. And yeah, I suppose when we started, like we were seeing a lot of people funding recovery after climate disasters, you know, um, but there was a real, gosh, what do I do about mitigating the climate crisis? Because it does, it is a big systems challenge and it can feel really overwhelming. And people, there are lots of really impressive groups out there doing important work. But I've, I found that a lot of friends and people that I knew got a bit stuck about who and where to 
throw their support. They're just, there's such a surplus of choice, you know? So we created Groundswell to be a bit of a welcome map for the climate movement. So for people who were wanting to learn more um, and also wanting to deliver impact quickly, we sort of serve as a bit of connective tissue between the people doing great stuff on the ground and the people who aren't necessarily able to give up their day job and join the climate movement, but want to see impact at scale. So our members join, they donate, we pull that money, and then we make grants to climate um, groups, people and organisations tackling the crisis through all sorts of different things. So strategic litigation, corporate campaigning, community organising, um, First Nations land and sea management, all those different parts of the puzzle. There are a number of change levers that you can take in our community funds an ecosystem of climate action rather than singular solutions. And we really believe in that movement building approach as a, as a thing to really strengthen. And, and through membership with Groundswell, members can learn about these organizations and then choose to go off and support them individually as well. So yeah, it's a learning journey as much as it is an impact story. And we've been able to raise and distribute over $2 million across the climate movement so far, which is really cool. That's awesome. Huge congrats yeah. on all the funding yeah. that's been happening. Yeah, um, yeah awesome. And I, I'd love to hear more about the type of climate projects you fund as mm -hmm. well. I guess the type of projects, and I understand there is a strong alignment with community involvement with First Nations people. So I'd love to, I'd love mm -hmm. if you could talk a bit more about that. Yeah, gosh, we've, we've funded over, we've made over 70 grants now. So there's so much awesome work we've been able to support. Some recent Amazing First Nations winners have been Gidanji for country, so traditional owners from Gidanji country, which is also located where the Borolula and the Beedaloo gas basin is. So it's a major epicenter of gas extraction. And the people whose traditional lands that extraction site sits on don't want it to happen there. And so this amazing, very small organization we're able to provide funds for to support their advocacy to protect their country and to stop gas fracking. So Ricky Dank, who's the leader, she's a younger Danji woman. She is going over to COP in Dubai to advocate for an end to coal and gas. She has done incredible sort of communications and community building and political engagement. They're in their early stages, but really fantastic organization to support. Another brilliant First Nations organization seed mobs. So they build the power of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander young people. They, it's a community organizing initiative. They skill them up, build their sort of change-making powers so that they can advocate for to protect their country. And that's a, a nationwide project. So right now they're focusing on WA, which is wonderful. Um, yeah, it's, there's been a number of really impressive and there are so many impressive climate uh, First Nations-led climate groups working out there. Another couple of examples I could give, uh, recently we made a grant to Rewiring Australia. So they're an ad advocacy group aimed at accelerating the uptake of household renewables, so electrifying your homes. And they do research and policy advice to advocate at a government level. And they're also doing sort of pilot electrification projects suburb by suburb, supporting an entire suburb to electrify, to go completely electric and use those case studies to advocate for 
that roll out at a nationwide level. They're super cool. And that's an organization founded by Saul Griffiths, who I'm sure a number of you guys will know. Um, and another really interesting one, which is super different, is Comms Declare. So Comms Declare is a small little not-for-profit, but they pack such a mighty punch and they're focused on getting fossil fuel advertising out of fossil fuels. So the more that, you know, basically the fossil fuel industry buys its social license through sponsoring <laughs> sports organizations and festivals and advertising. And the gas industry particularly is trying to market themselves as a necessary transition fuel when most of the gas that we extract is exported. It doesn't support you know, their latest campaign was keeping the lights on. We don't need gas to keep the lights on at the level that we dig up and extract it. Um, it's absolute misinformation. And their TV ad was actually ended up banned, being banned for disinformation. So Cons Declare works to both call out the advertising agencies that are continuing to support climate destruction, as well as uh, working on removing the social license, I suppose, of at a more public level of fossil fuel advertising. So a recent initiative that they did was put a ban on fossil fuel advertising across the city of Sydney. And they're looking at other regions to do this similar sort of thing, which I think is really cool. It's, I mean, it's the same sort of approach that the, we had to take with the tobacco industry. Um, and funnily enough, you know, the fossil fuel industry has employed in the early days, the very same PR team that the tobacco industry used to keep trying to pretend that smoking didn't cause cancer. So it's very much the same playbook. And I think what Comms Declare are doing to um, disrupt that is really interesting. Yeah, awesome. And and I think I I was looking at that in your TED talk about yeah. the big oil companies and, and how they knew this information from the 80s, but went out of their way to actually try and prove that fossil fuels were a good thing or whatever it was. Super interesting. And I, and I think like it's pretty, it's pretty awesome how Funding can also be used as a tool to create awesome climate solutions that, you know, like support the environment, but also on the other hand, uh, sort of, I guess, put money out of like negative things like a, a, in oil and gas and fossil fuels. I guess that brings me to my next question, which is, I, I do feel like these days people, you know, they are quite skeptical about where their money goes. And I think, you know, there is like so much talk about greenwashing and there is talk about like carbon credits and, and how legitimate it is. Um, so what sort of criteria do you guys use at Groundswell into assessing what would be a good project or initiative that that you should get involved in and put your funds to it? Yeah, we use, I mean, we engage with different strategic advisors at every ground. So experts working in climate strategy. So recently we had somebody working within the Climate Action Network Australia, somebody working within the Sunrise Project, both major kind of movement strategists and thinkers. So they help guide our selection process alongside of a committee of members. Um, when we're looking at how effective an organisation is, firstly, like, most of the organizations in the climate movement run incredibly lean. You know, they're a team of a few people, lots of volunteers. They do things, but they are often able to really punch above their weight. Um, most of our grants are between forty dollars and $80,000, and that can be really transformative for those organizations. Things that we look for when assessing their effectiveness, uh, like scale of impact, the strength of their theory of change. So, 
if they, you know, does this plan actually add up to what they're saying? If somebody is saying, I'm going to host a movie night and shut down the coal industry, that's not an effective theory of change. But if we can see all the connective tissue from goals to measurable objectives and the campaign milestones, um, we look at that really closely. We look at the people involved and whether they have the organizational capacity to deliver on what they're saying. Do they have the right relationships? If they're organizing a community, are they the right people to be organizing that community? We prioritize First Nations-led organizations and projects. Yeah, and a bunch of things. And I suppose thinking about the scale of the impact um, of the project or the organization to have a national influence. You don't necessarily need a nationwide campaign. Um, you can We can look at really strategic areas and resourcing work in one key electorate might have ripple effects that can be really transformative um, across the country. So yeah, lots of it's a really rigorous process. It takes about a month for the review. And at the end of the review, our committee makes a shortlist and then our members get to vote on what organizations they want to support. And Groundsaw, at Groundsaw, we don't take any um, percentage of the funds that members donate. 100% of them go directly to those grants and our operational expenses are private, covered privately by philanthropy to incentivize new climate philanthropy because we need more people giving as much as they can while we can. Yeah, awesome. Seems like a very rigorous process, but I think the fact that it has been sustainable over three years shows that there is that demand from the climate community. And I'm sure philanthropy also goes a long way towards that. Um, I was reading a bit about Boundless. Mm-hmm. Is it an organization you're connected to as well? Yeah, yeah. So um, the leader of Boundless, Eitan Lenko, he was one of our founding advisors. Oh, wow. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. They do great stuff. Um, It's great to see the Cannonbrook stepping in at that level and with that scale of ambition. And they've been funding a bunch of really important strategic work. So if we could get 20 more Boundlesses of people leaning in and giving it that level, we'd we'd be pretty good. Yeah, no, awesome. Hopefully, hopefully mm-hmm. that happens uh, in a few more years uh, as, it, as the movement accelerates. Awesome. Thanks for that, Ariel. Um, I did want to go a little bit into the psychology of climate action, which I find super interesting. And I'm, and I'm guessing it's something that you've observed as well. So I think you can normally go like one of two ways. You've got like the climate warriors who, you know, might see a documentary or might see something, an issue with food waste and want to really create action. But then you've got quite a number of people where it might be quite hard. They're like, you know, what can I do with such a huge issue? Where do I even start? Um, and I know you've probably done a few speeches and communicated about this topic to a wide variety of people from different sort of places in the climate spectrum. So what's your take on this? And what do you think is the most effective way to empower people? Uh, the most effective way to empower people, I suppose I use myself often as a case study. When I was coming in and I remember that feeling of thinking about it and then pulling away because it was too hard and too big. And I was like, somebody else needs to sort this out. Um, So I relate to the kind of overwhelm and I can see how that translates into paralysis and avoidance with people. Like it's just, you know, this kind of cognitive dissonance. It's a, it's a survival tool. As much as anything else, you know, but it's also threatening our survival. So how do we overcome that? I think empowerment um, is a really important thing. No, but what I what I find with Groundswell is that 
climate change is a big and heavy topic, um, but to get people in, it really like shouting doesn't always work and fear doesn't always work. What I've found is most empowering is messages of constructive action, beauty, you know, the reasons why we're doing this, like what we're seeking to protect. Um, so really leaning in and connecting with love, dare I say it? Like, I think that's a very powerful and motivating thing. When I look at why members join Groundswell, they leave testimonials and it's all about love and it's all about wanting to be good ancestors and the future that they want to leave for their kids. So I think, you know, the approach that you can take, you know, different strokes for different folks. Some people will be really motivated by data and there's a whole lot of that out there. Uh, a lot of people, I think, need messages of hope and connectivity and positive actions and solutions to want to step in. Um, I think there's a time and place for real talk, like where we're at in the climate crisis is, is really dire, like it's a frightening moment and so much needs to happen and the risks of inaction are absolutely exponential. Um, and we have to be real about that, but we also have to be strategic about when and how we talk about that. For example, somebody who already feels alarmed about the climate crisis is very comfortable using the term emergency is very comfortable, you know, they still might find it challenging and triggering and all the rest of it. It doesn't make it those feelings less or more palatable or less hard, but they can connect with messages of emergency. Whereas if somebody is a bit cautious about climate science and is a bit on the fence, if you speak to them about an emergency, they're just going to walk further away. Yeah. So you really have to recognize who you're speaking to and how you speak to them. Um, and that's true across different ways that people feel about climate. It's true about, you know, a really important lesson is that the messenger matters as much as the message. So for example, me and inner city greenie is not the person to go and speak to farmers in regional Australia, but what Groundsaw can do is support and resource farmers who are already climate advocates to advocate within their own communities. So we need less outsiders coming in and telling people what to do and more empowering people from a grassroots ground up approach to bring their communities on board and help showcase the benefits of the transition and be able to workshop. You know, it's not all smooth sailing. Like there are significant things that need to be wrestled with and um, worked out. But, you know, the more that communities can really lead and self-determine what the energy transition looks like, what resilience and adaptation look like, um, the better. Yeah. Awesome. And I think you made a good point about finding someone who's relatable to them. Like, I guess someone like you and me might be hard to convince like farmers, but if you have someone who's like a champion in the community, going out there and reaching out to them is really good. Um, it's also so exciting to see what's driven by youth, I think. On Friday, there was a youth climate strike, which, um, you know, mm -hmm. it's, 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 yeah, it's, it's quite exciting. And I think it's, we're sort of challenging this sort of norm that younger people should be like seen and not heard. And I think it's really good because they're driving a lot of this change, um, and are driving it within their families too. So yeah, I think it's yeah. like finding those people. Um, and another thing I've read about is it's going to be very hard to convince the people who are, you know, like anti-climate change, you've got to like choose who you want to sort of um sort yeah. of convince and get on board so i think there are so many layers to it um 
But I think the dial is shifting thanks to organizations like Groundswell. So really awesome stuff. Yeah. And folks deny us that's so small. Only 5% of our population believes that the climate isn't changing and humans have nothing to do with it. You know, like it's just, they're a lot louder than they seem. And (laughs) online echo chambers can really amplify them. But actually most people... Um, are very on board with climate reality and climate solutions. Yeah, for sure. I, I feel like, especially if we're seeing it in our backyards, like I think Groundswell was formed after other bushfires in 2019, 2020, right? So that like, whenever you see yeah. that, you probably just like, I need to do something about it. So yeah. yeah. But yeah, and and I think like the next thing I wanted to talk about was I did come across this newly released report called It's Up To Us um, about yep. using, about individuals using their funds to solve the climate crisis. I think there isn't too much reports out there. And, um, you know, I think, you've, I think you've got data from quite a few points. So uh, would you be able to give a quick overview about like what's the report about and what's the objective you want to get out of the report? Yeah, sure. Um, well, more and more people are coming to us interested in funding and accelerating solutions. But like I was saying before, I get stuck in the where to begin. Um, so we do this work with people over and over and over, but we wanted to create a handbook to synthesize it and make it, uh, make it the entry point a lot more accessible. So demystifying the climate movement, showcasing the change levers that funders can pull on to affect meaningful change. Mm. So whether that's expanding and enforcing laws, building the movement, shifting the money, changing the politics, there's lots of different things that, different kind of pressure points for funders to go in and make really outsized um, uh, investments or investments that will deliver outsized impacts. Mm. We also wanted to showcase the horrifically low level of giving that climate and environment receive. Climate advocacy, I mean, climate and environment receive less than 2% of all giving, both in Australia and internationally. Um, And you compare that to, you know, the luxury boat, boat market or whatever, like Chanel handbags pretty much brought in like double the um, money that giving to climate in Australia received last year, which is just quite crazy. We really need to think about like how we're using our money and what wealth means, what it can be used for. You know, what's the use of a handbag on a dead dead planet? One would wonder. Um, So we're sort of talking about having a bit of real talk about how we're spending our money and maybe some interesting ways that we could spend it differently. Another kind of scary statistic is that in Australia, 45% of people who earn over $1 million a year don't give anything to charity. And charitable giving is what keeps the climate and environmental movement afloat. It's not coming from government because often their work is directly in opposition to government policy so yeah shining a bit of light on that and then just giving people a bunch of tools and case studies about what effective climate action looks like um and ways of investing in that kind of action but you know groundswell exists to support people on their journeys this is an entry tool and we hope it'll be a really valuable resource for people wanting to learn more and start to wrap their heads around it trying to accelerate everybody's learning journey so they don't have to faff around for years but can kind of dive in and get started um, and do good things in a short period of time. And yeah, we're going to host some workshops next year. Want to do a lot of engagement around it. So would encourage anybody who is keen to start investing in it to reach out and have a chat with us. Yeah, awesome. And you can download uh, it on our website too. 
Yes, I have downloaded it. So it's got into my oh, inbox. Nice. The plan is to read it soon. So I'm 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 keen oh, for that nice. Um but yeah, and I think we made my... it really fun to look at. We put lots of penguins and colorful things in there I, though. Yeah, it's I not did, a ball. I did, I, did see, I did see the picture of the penguin and it said only two percent of charitable giving goes to climate action. And like, yeah, I think that's a pretty shocking. But you know, I do think Groundswell is doing great stuff for intergenerational equity. So I think that's a huge topic that climate is sort of focused towards. So Hopefully more exciting things to come. Um, yeah. Awesome. And then this is a great follow-up and you sort of touched on this, but what's the legacy you want to leave for Groundswell Giving? This is a very, like, I guess it's, it can be a, a bit of a long-term question, but what is that legacy you want to leave behind? Yeah, it's such a good question. I think doing everything that we could to be good ancestors. Yeah. That's it. Simple <laughs> as that. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Simple awesome. as that. <laughs> yeah. Cool, cool, cool. Um, we've got a couple of speed round questions, Ariel. So this, this probably won't take too long. Um, the first one is what we ask, oh, like almost all our guests on the podcast, but what is some advice you'd give to your younger self? Public speaking gets easier with time. Okay. <laughs> Don't be scared. <laughs> okay. Yep. 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 That's a, a very valid point. Uh, and then mm-hmm. finally, so where can listeners, I learn more about you and grants while giving. If you go to our website, groundswellgiving.org, or you follow us on Instagram at groundswellgiving. Awesome. Awesome. And I think you mentioned about how uh, people can get involved through their funds. Um, What are ways to do that and what are the options available? Yeah. So you can make a one-off donation or sign up as a recurring member and donate via our website, groundswellgiving.org. Um, every dollar you donate will go directly to Climate Action Grants. And if you sign up as a member, $20 a week, you can vote on which organisations we fund each year. We run a couple of grant rounds. It's so much fun and really, really interesting and goes to delivering outcomes for people and planet. That's so awesome. That's so cool. I think it's so tangible that you can actually vote and have an active say. So, um, yeah, yeah, hopefully you can get a few more donors soon. <laughs> Thank you. Appreciate the support. Yeah. It's a really fun process voting and learning about all the epic work that goes on. The hardest thing is who to support. They're all incredibly worthy. Yeah, I'm sure. I'm sure. Well, that's a wrap, everyone. Ariel, it's been really awesome to have you on board. I think you gave some really good answers about your journey, about like the climate space. And I think why it's so important that funding needs to start at, um, at the grassroots level. And yeah, and I think the concept of legacy is super important. And thank you for sharing your personal journey. Groundswell Giving sounds like an awesome initiative. So I wish you guys the best. Uh, And yeah, keen to see the impact you make in the next few years and beyond. So it's a pleasure to have you on board. Thanks so much. Really lovely to meet you. Thanks for your time. Awesome. Have a good one, everyone. Thank you. Bye. Thanks. Bye.